Getting pulled over is stressful. Have you ever wondered what could happen if there was an attorney in my passenger seat? With TurnSignal, attorneys provide on-demand, face-to-face guidance to drivers during traffic stops and after accidents. The app records interaction and connects lawyers to members of the community when it matters most. Whether you're an attorney trying to give back or a firm committed to increase access to justice, TurnSignal makes it easy. With TurnSignal, we can ensure that civil rights are protected for everyone, every time. For details, contact TurnSignal. That's T-U-R-N-S-I-G-N-L. Or find us online at TurnSignal.com. Every action matters. Get TurnSignal today. Howdy. Welcome to Fine Laws. Don't judge me. I'm Veva Himetha, and you've joined us in what is part two of two in our series on the Ninth Amendment. Now, if you didn't catch our first installment, which aired last week, or if you don't know what the heck the Ninth Amendment says, well, get in line, neither did we. But you might want to go back and listen to the March 25th episode first, where you will have to sit through a little bit more of me yammering on, but mostly learn a lot more background stuff on the Ninth Amendment from prominent constitutional scholar Professor Randy Barnett of Georgetown Law School. On to this week's episode. Me and my bud Andy got to hang with another great legal scholar, Professor Brian Colt, who walks us one office down from the judicial branch to the legislature and talks about how Congress could use the Ninth Amendment. Thanks so much for joining and we hope you enjoy. I now have the great pleasure of introducing our second guest, Brian C. Colt, who is a professor of law at Michigan State University and whose research focuses on structural constitutional law, among other things. He's the author of the 2012 book, Constitutional Cliffhangers, A Legal Guide for Presidents and Their Enemies. Professor Colt has also authored a rather niche article in the Pepperdine Law Review titled The Ninth Amendment in Congress. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Colt. We're glad to have you. And... I'm curious as to what sparked your interest in this sort of niche take in talking about what Congress can do with the Ninth Amendment rather than the judiciary. I have been thinking about the Ninth Amendment for some time and this debate about what courts are supposed to do with it, in in my mind, missed a rather important angle, which was that judges aren't the only people in our system who are supposed to be interpreting the Constitution. Once I started thinking about what Congress could do with the Ninth Amendment, I realized that there was there was a lot there. And I and I wanted to uh, I wanted to dig into that. Yeah, I think in your article in the Pepperdine Law Review, which we referred to, you said you talk about how in the 20th century, there seemed to be a focus on judicial supremacy. And this century, there seems to be more of a trend, maybe a reactive one, but a new trend towards empowering the non-judicial branches and promoting their duty to interpret the Constitution. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, this is part of the original design of the Constitution. It wasn't ever supposed to be that the judiciary got the only word on interpreting the Constitution. Congress was supposed to think about the Constitution uh, before it passed a law, ask themselves, is this constitutional? And if they didn't think it was constitutional, they weren't supposed to pass it. Same thing with the president. If something wasn't constitutional in the president's interpretation, he wasn't supposed to sign it. And so we had all of these multiple layers of protection. All of these ducks had to be in a row before a law could get passed. And then even if it did get passed, if someone was prosecuted, the judge would have to think that it was constitutional, but so would the jury. The jury took a much more vigorous role back then. And as we have relied more and more on the courts, 
it became politically easier for people in Congress to say, well, we'll let the court worry about whether this is constitutional or not. We'll do what is politically popular. And as a result of them ceasing to think about whether what they're doing is constitutional or not, we've lost several of those layers of protection. And I, I think it's a good idea to uh, look to the Ninth Amendment as a way to bring some of those back. Yeah, we've talked a lot in the past on this show about the whole strategy now of big legislation is just, well, we'll just pass it, and then there will inevitably be a lawsuit from, from the ideological opponents of this big law, and then we'll just see. And then if that doesn't work out, we'll figure out how to pass a bunch of executive orders to get sort of close to how we want this legislation to work which is all incredibly inefficient, right? Like, let's just get it right the first time and be literate in the Constitution. That's another point I wanted to make. It seems like perhaps because of this trend, I don't know where it stemmed from, but this this trend on judicial supremacy and sort of buck passing to the courts to interpret the Constitution, there seems to be almost an illiteracy amongst people outside the judiciary sometimes, um, not to get too political, but by some presidents. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> one wonders if, they, if they've read the Constitution. This is a nonpartisan podcast. <laughs> nonpartisan podcast. So you talked about some of these non-judicial actors, the president and Congress. Is there anybody else that you think who's, who's the responsibility or right it is to work with the Constitution? Well, ultimately, I think the, uh, the general public should be engaged in these discussions too. Because when we say that Congress or the president are supposed to do something a certain way, that that they're supposed to do something right, the people are the ones who are supposed to hold the line on that and decide whether they agree. Is the president getting the First Amendment right? Is the president getting the Fourth Amendment right? Is Congress getting any part of the Constitution right? If they're not, then we're supposed to vote for other people. Right. The, the thing that the Ninth Amendment does is it tells us to not limit our discussion to the Constitution. It says there are all of these other rights. They're not even in the Constitution. So, so don't look at the Constitution as the end of the discussion. Look at it for this reminder that we're supposed to be talking about rights even if they're not written down in the Constitution. We're not supposed to act like anything that's not forbidden is permitted. If we take the Ninth Amendment more seriously in our political discourse, we can get away from this focus on constitutional clauses that get interpreted beyond all recognition because people want particular results. If, if we free ourselves from that, we can have discussions about rights without getting entangled in all this legalism. Right. And to get into the Ninth Amendment specifically now, since that, that's your focus, I will admit, I, I did go to law school, I practiced. This is not an amendment that attorneys are really, would you agree, are super familiar with. It's like our, our law school seemed to skip straight from eight to 10. I rediscovered the Ninth Amendment this week. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Well, I think the Ninth Amendment is ignored because courts haven't sort of figured out what to do with it. But the idea of unenumerated rights is certainly familiar to most lawyers. It's just that the courts put it in substantive due process or right. some, some 14th Amendment notion. What they're doing is similar to what the Ninth Amendment said. But I think it's also because the Ninth Amendment tells you that you have these other rights that they that they didn't go away when we wrote down these other rights 
but it doesn't tell us what those rights are. And so it's right. not as alive to people as something that says you have the freedom of speech or freedom from unreasonable searches. Like, you know what that is. It's it's there on its face. The Ninth Amendment, by definition, is going to be obscure. It's telling you that you have the rights to things that it's not telling you what they are. So it, what do you do with that? And it, seem, it seems that some originalists or textualists or whatever you want to call them just have, have seen to just kind of punt on the Ninth Amendment as well. Like I was reading in his failed confirmation hearings, Robert Bork called it an ink blot um, and basically just admitted that it was, it's kind of sounded like he was saying it's too, it's too hard to think about. <laughs> exactly. If you're a judge, it raises all of these problems. But if you're in Congress, it opens up an opportunity. So we, we hear this all the time. People will say something like, you have the right to health care. Um, mm-hmm. That so and some will say, well, where's that in the Constitution? Well, if if it's a court arguing about whether there's a right to health care, it matters very much whether it's in the Constitution or not. But if you're in Congress debating whether there's a right to health care or not, you might really believe that there's a right to health care and we should proceed accordingly. We should legislate as though people have this higher order entitlement to healthcare. And if you want to proceed that way and someone says, well, where in the constitution is that? You can say, it doesn't have to be in the constitution. The ninth amendment tells us that the bill of rights isn't an exclusive exhaustive list of our rights. So if we feel like there's this right or on the negative right side, that there's a right to privacy and and people can argue about whether that's in the constitution or whether they're penumbras or not, it doesn't matter. The ninth amendment says, if there's a right to privacy, the fact that it's not written down in the Constitution doesn't matter. We can still respect that. And if Congress returns to that notion and debates whether there's a right or not without, again, without getting tied up in the, the legalism of what's actually written in the Constitution, we can have, I think, much more edifying debates about what what our rights really are, what they really should be. Yeah. And and you guys both bring up great points in the fact that because this Ninth Amendment, unlike the others, is not... It's almost like like a, a negative space. It's 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 a lack <laughs> of rights, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing to interpret, right? Uh, and so that becomes maybe that's why people, including often judges, are loath to interpret something that's not there because it requires extra thinking of what all the possibilities are, and and they are endless, right? Technically, so maybe that's why there's a lot of scholarship on how actors outside the judicial branch can engage in constitutional interpretation of other amendments, but maybe that this scholarship often doesn't encompass the Ninth Amendment, right? I think that's absolutely right. But at the same time, if you look at the political debates we've had, I think people in Congress and in the in the general public have intuited this, this notion of rights, that it's not all about the Constitution. Like people do talk about whether there's a right to health care, and they're not talking about it being in the Constitution because it's not. People talk about a right to privacy, and sometimes they talk about whether it's in the Constitution, but really what they're interested in, it's not the Constitution, what they're interested in is privacy. And so we do we do have these debates and we do have things that I think, if you ask the question, well, what does it mean for something to be a right? If Congress passes something and, and the statute says that you get this thing, what's the difference between the statute giving it to you or you having a, a right to it? And I, I think that goes to how hard it is to change, right? Like what Congress needs to do, how constrained do they feel about it? So think of something like social security. As as a legal matter, there's nothing stopping Congress tomorrow from repealing social security. But there is a deeply rooted sense that retired people 
in this country have a right to something like Social Security. And as a result of that, Congress, even if they thought that it might be a good idea to cut it back in certain ways, they would be up against this entrenchment of it. And it's not just that it, it's popular. It's that people think that there's a right to it, that the government uh, has, has a duty to do this, not just that they chose to do it, but that they have a duty. People already act like there are rights. We're just not using the Ninth Amendment. We're not grounding it in the Ninth Amendment, which I think if we did would make people feel more comfortable with this discourse and I think would would be really helpful. Yeah, courts aren't grounding this discourse of unenumerated rights in the Ninth Amendment. This, this is something we talked about in part one of the series last week. We talked about how the Ninth was ignored for two centuries. It was cited for regurgitated federalism principles and read in conjunction with the Tenth Amendment for so long. And then Griswold v. Connecticut comes along in the 60s. And that was the first time SCOTUS used it, at least in part, to find an unenumerated substantive right, um, the right of privacy in a marital relationship, specifically in the context of using contraception. But the majority doesn't state explicitly how they use the Ninth Amendment. It's just kind of lumped together with a bunch of others. So you're left wondering, is the right to marital privacy a substantive right found in the Ninth Amendment? Or is it like a product of all these different mentioned amendments combined? Or is the Ninth Amendment just essentially functioning like an enabling clause? The Supreme Court seems to have refused to entertain Ninth Amendment arguments. For example, we got Einstein v. Baird. It legit doesn't mention the words Ninth Amendment. And then in Roe v. Wade, the lower court and the parties even argued that the right to abortion was found in the Ninth Amendment but SCOTUS pulled it out of the 14th instead. So why has the court just been avoiding the Ninth Amendment like the plague? I think that the court wasn't comfortable with opening up the Ninth Amendment can of worms. There was already a lot of substantive due process jurisprudence. They weren't entirely comfortable with that either, but I think that they felt that that was easier to sort of keep in check. And and they had something that was working for them. So they already had one can of worms open. They didn't right. see the need to open a, a second. The, the court in recent decades has been rethinking a lot of these things. And so maybe they will change uh, what they say about the Ninth Amendment. But whatever the court does, Congress, the, the president, the people can have these discussions about rights and know that the Constitution is telling us that we're supposed to be having these conversations. Is this more just a, a difference in rhetoric and how you see this working out in terms of what happens in Congress on a daily basis as they work through issues related to, I mean, right now, when I think about the Build Back Better bill, that's going nowhere, <laughs> but some of the questions that were contained in there, such as maybe the right to free community college or the right to childcare or the right to paid time off. Is it, what do you, what's different about grounding it in the Ninth Amendment, maybe that you think might make it more effective? This was, I think, when, when I wrote my article uh, for Pepperdine, I think this was the, the toughest question to answer. What does it actually do to say that something's right? To say, again, mm -hmm. not just you get this thing, but that you have a right to this thing. And that's where the shift would have to occur. You would have to have people in Congress making laws and, and the voters, you know, choosing the people in Congress, thinking in terms of this 
other category, thinking in terms of rights, sort of, sort of the way the, the, the UK, not having a written constitution, but they do have a constitution, they do have rights, they sort of themselves feel constrained. They say, well, yeah, theoretically, we can do whatever we want, but there's this deeply rooted thing. And so there's a higher bar. If we're going to do something that goes against this right, we're going to need to recognize that we're changing uh, rights. We're changing, they're changing the constitution, but here, changing rights. So it's if you think of people who want to pass a certain bill because they like it, people who want to defeat a certain bill because they don't like it, and then people in the middle who think that whether they like it or not, there's a right here and it constrains them. It, it determines the outcome. It gives us something other than the whim, the preference of the moment that we need to be following here. That's a change that would have to happen. So it's not just about calling it a right. It's about treating it like a right and acting like even though you might want a different result, you can't have that. You have to, you have to act constrained. Just as an example, thinking of the right to privacy, you might think, well, it would be great if the government could, you know, no one likes too much government surveillance, but in this particular case, it would be good. It would be helpful if we could surveil these particular people in this particular way. And, and then to think of it in terms of rights to say, well, yeah, that would be good, but there's a right to privacy here. This this violates that. Again, not that a court would say it, not that it's in the Constitution that they would strike it down, but that there's a broader privacy principle here that we should respect. Because the next case that comes around, maybe it's our privacy that's at stake, and we'll be better off having established this stronger foundation for privacy rights. So you, you can set up this uh, higher standing for Again, negative rights like privacy or positive rights like housing or, or, or health care. And so when the next bill comes up, you, you can say, well, look, we had this debate before and we decided that not only uh, should we do this thing, but that we had to do it, that there was a right here, right? We raised the bar on ourselves. We made it harder to win in that case, but the result of that was we entrenched some or we made it harder for us to defeat this because we said not only not only shouldn't we pass this we can't pass this because it violates this fundamental right this fundamental principle we made it harder to defeat this bill but we established something that's a shift that would have to happen but i would also say if you're if you're looking at this and saying well what's to stop the new congress from just doing a 180 and and doing this differently you could say the same thing about constitutional cases and the court. Supreme yeah. Court does 180s on constitutional stuff all the time. And members of Congress then would have to run on that action though again and they may face rejection or approval by the public. It's kind of you're you're actually making a very good case for legislators actually legislating, which like is, is something we 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 haven't had a lot of. <laughs> and I think that it's also important because it creates that dialogue with the public about these things. And and I think I'm, I'm definitely influenced in my thinking on this by one of my mentors in law school, Bruce Ackerman, who, uh, when he was thinking about uh, his theory of constitutional moments, where the constitutional order can be changed by a series, not, not just a one-time deal, but a series of consistent political decisions made by an electorate that has a, sort of a heightened level of engagement over a, a, an extended period of time. And that's that's sort of what I'm, I think, envisioning when I'm talking about establishing something as a right. It's not really a one-time deal. It's mm -hmm. a series of serious 
engaged discussions, repeated after elections, right? The, the, the voters affirm this and reaffirm it and reaffirm it. And before you know it, it's entrenched like social security. And that's how it works in the judiciary, of course. And so I'm wondering, would Congress's practice of engagement with the Ninth Amendment or, or Constitution in general, other rights, would it effectively function like judicial precedent, such as, you know, the right to privacy, as you allude to, it's not found in the Constitution, but it's become entrenched in the courts? Would it go the same route in Congress? And then, and if so, then how does Congress distinguish what it does from the courts? What's the purpose of having both branches? I think that precedent necessarily has to work very differently in in a political branch than it does in a court. Because in the courts, there's really no accountability, no direct accountability to the voters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if the court doesn't restrain itself, then there's really no way for anyone else. Particularly with lifetime appointments, right? Exactly. But in Congress, it's not as important to have that sort of heft to uh, the precedent necessarily. If they want to change how they do something, they can change how they do it. I guess the point is that if they set up a principle by being really engaged and really consistent over a long period of time and setting something up, that the recognition has to be that it would take something also extra engaged, extended period of time, serious debate to tear it down. Like repealing Obamacare and then two years later reinstating it and then two years later repealing it and then something like that. Yeah. Well, it's a good example of that. I mean, we've had debates, we've had elections decided uh, on the issue of Obamacare over a period of time. It looks like it's stuck in there pretty good. Uh, It's not going anywhere. The Republicans have sort of stopped Mm -hmm. uh, for now the the aggressive attempt to just completely dismantle it. They, they still talk about it sometimes, but but it's stuck in there in a way that just passing it one time with a simple majority wouldn't wouldn't do. And Professor Call, do you think that Congress is really interested in having these discussions and engaging with <laughs> the Constitution in a way that we've established as necessary. You know, not only do you have to be literate, but you have to be very proactive, um, a lot more proactive in in, in this kind of in, in this kind of legislating. Honestly, I do. You know, it's easy to pick on Congress for being ineffectual, being concerned with re-election and fundraising, but I know that there are people in Congress that are serious about rights. They think seriously about rights. And I feel like if they had a better way to talk about rights, a more expansive way to talk about rights, rather than this legalistic tied to constitutional clauses sort of discussion, they could have that wide open debate about rights. I think they could really get into that. And I think the voters could really get into that. And it would be hard to win these arguments because it's hard to get consensus on little things these Mm -hmm. days, let alone the super consensus extended consensus you'd need for big things. But I think that if we have those discussions as a, as a country, who knows what we, we could find all sorts of things that we have these big consensuses on. If we free ourselves from the constraint of this clause bound, constitutional clause bound discussion and have this, again, I think members of Congress and members of the public could really get into that. If this were to play out in Congress, how can we know that congressional opponents of a particular bill are voting against it because they actually believe it violates an unenumerated right as opposed to voting against it because they think it makes bad policy or because it's in line with their party interests or, you know, the other usual reasons that legislatures have? 
a lot of times people use constitutional arguments as an excuse. Oh, I would love to pass this bill, but I don't think it would be constitutional when in fact they just really don't want to pass the bill. The Ninth Amendment argument, though, sort of flips that on its head. You're not going to want to make the argument about something being a right unless you think you can win that argument because you're making it harder for yourself to win. You're you're aiming higher. Um, so instead of saying we shouldn't pass that, you're saying we can't pass this. Instead of saying we should pass this, we're, you're, you're saying we must pass this. You're you're aiming higher. So you're not going to you're not going to make that argument about rights until and unless you think you can win. So maybe you think something's a good idea. Maybe you think it's a right, but you don't have the support for it yet. So you just pass the law. You don't say it's a right. You just say it's a thing that we should do. And then it gets more entrenched and more popular and you do more things along the same lines. And then once you've got that foundation, then you can start talking about rights. Then you might be able to aim higher and, and win and hit that higher target. Because it's March Madness right now, thinking about trying for a, a, a three-pointer, it's harder to hit a three-pointer, but it's worth more points. So, you know, you, you don't do it unless you think you can make it. You, you don't have to um, automatically start aiming higher, trying to establish something as a right. You can start lower, build yourself up over time. And then when you think you can win, then you can take that risk. And as long as it's taking a risk, it's less problematic to say, if you win, you're getting something more than just passing a law. You're, you're establishing a right. That could be unfolding in the coming years, depending on what uh, Supreme Court does in uh, Dobbs v. Jackson. On if the, if the court does effectively gut Roe v. Wade, the buck to kind of protect the right to an abortion will be passed to Congress. And maybe there will be a spot for the Ninth Amendment to get back involved instead of just the 14th. That also brings up another potential issue. I, I don't know if there's enough consensus in Congress or if there will be enough lasting consensus in Congress to sort of reach an accord about what to be done about abortion. But uh, if not, then it gets kicked out to the states. And it's worth mentioning that uh, there's nothing preventing this Ninth Amendment notion from applying in state legislatures as well. So if a state oh, wants to say there's a right to uh, an abortion or that there's a right to life uh, or fetal personhood or whichever side they want to take it, they can do that. Now, I, I think that with abortion, they're probably more likely to want things enforceable in court. So it's probably much more likely to be done through constitutional amendment and writing new constitutional clauses. But if they don't do that or they haven't done that, there's nothing preventing state legislators from saying, now, it might not be in the constitution of our state or the federal government, but I think there's this right. And I think we should proceed accordingly. And they could do that. They could do that for abortion. They could do that for healthcare. They could do that for anything. Again, as long as there's that consensus, they can have this more entrenched, more established protection. I imagine you might have envisioned that this would more likely start at the federal level. Well, it depends. I mean, a lot of states have something like the Ninth Amendment in their mm -hmm. constitutions. So if they have a reminder, hey, everyone, don't act like the only rights you have mm -hmm. are the ones listed in the Constitution, then great. They, they they should do that. They should not act like the only rights they have are the ones written in the Constitution. We've been talking a lot about Congress. We haven't touched that much on the potential role of the executive branch, although you alluded that there should be one um, in engaging with Ninth Amendment. I wonder what your thoughts are on the president engaging and, and being able to use utilize this amendment. Well, first, just thinking about the Ninth Amendment in Congress, 
whenever you're talking about legislation, you, you got to talk about the president. The president has a role. The president has to sign the legislation or they pass it over his veto. Uh, the president is required to propose legislation by the, the Constitution. It tells him to propose things. So he's part of the process. And so I think he should be part of that Ninth Amendment discussion, just like the House is, just like the Senate is, just like members there are, the president should be too, because he's deeply engaged in the legislative enterprise. Separately, though, I think that presidents do, as we've seen, presidents do have a lot of power to effectuate things outside of the statutory process. There's administrative law, not just executive orders, but Congress empowering the president empowering the executive branch to do certain things, they can use those notions in the way that they effectuate policy, the way that they execute the law. So while they're making choices, there are things left to their discretion. Should we give the benefit this way or that way? Should we restrict this pollutant this way or that way? Like whatever they're doing, they could be thinking in similar terms. If there is a right to clean water and the statute gives them discretion, they can use that discretion in a way consistent with what the president thinks the rights in this case are. There's a right to clean water or there's a right to be free from red tape. Again, there's something on both sides where it can infuse the decision-making. It can infuse the president's exercise of discretion. The difference there though is unlike Congress, which is a deliberative body, the president is just sort of declaring things, right. uh, only getting elected every four years. So you don't have the same sense of forming what this right is mm-hmm. over a period of time through a, a intensive dialogue. So I think it, it doesn't fit as naturally as it does on the legislative side. The executive side, there's, there's a role for it, but it doesn't fit quite the same. I think that there is not as much of a role for the president in Mm -hmm. establishing rights uh, through executive decision making. But more as a mouthpiece. Well, once once rights have been established through the legislative process, once this is sort of talked about and recognized as a thing, there is a role for the president and the executive branch to help effectuate that. Mm -hmm. But the creative side of it, I think, is really more on the legislative side than the executive side. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor Call. This was a treat to hear, you know, sort of niche ideas that aren't usually talked about on a niche amendment that's not usually talked about. I'm the resident cynic here about Congress <laughs> as someone who's who worked on the Hill for a while. And it's nice to hear someone with a different with a different take. <laughs> well, I, I have my cynical moments. I'll send you a link. <laughs> And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. 